Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast, unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, a corporate exec turned author who has recently written a series of books about topics we don't often talk about. Things like death, grief, not having kids, and the unexplained power doctors often wield over us. Apparently, some of my books have made some people feel a little uncomfortable, but I felt that I wanted to have far more conversations around weird, wonderful, and sometimes taboo topics. So I reached out to some interesting people and asked them just one question. If there is one topic that you'd love society to talk more about, what would it be and why? And what they've shared with me has been amazing. So let's dive in and see where the conversation takes us. Some things are going backwards, some things are inching forwards, but we certainly haven't seen the sort of seismic shifts. We thought, oh, in a decade, everything's going to look radically different. And it doesn't. Like it really doesn't from a numbers perspective. Megan Delacamina is a best-selling author, women's mentor and coach, founder and CEO of Women Rising, and one of the world's leading experts on women's leadership, well-being and empowerment. She is also the editor-in-chief of the fabulous digital magazine, Women the Journal. Megan is a sought-after strategist, thought leader and researcher on women's leadership, creating a new frontier for women and work, which, as we know, is vital in our new world that we currently find ourselves in. With an unequal depth of experience, she is engaged by companies and leaders all around the world who are ready to create real and sustainable change. Not only has her work been featured on NBC, CNN, CBS News, and in hundreds of media outlets, including Forbes, Fortune, and Fast Company, among others, she is also the best-selling author of three books, including her latest which is a fabulous book that I've read, Simple, Soulful, Sacred, A Woman's Guide to Clarity, Comfort and Coming Home to Herself. It's a fabulous read if you can get your hands on one. I've been lucky enough to see Megan in action as the master of ceremonies at events, and she always brings a thought-provoking, fiercely feminine approach whilst making you feel like you've just met your long-lost mate that you haven't seen in a while. She has such a beautiful warmth about her. I'm delighted to have her on the show. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very excited about our conversation. Yeah, I can't wait as well. You always uh, have so many insightful points that you talk about, so I can't wait to get stuck in. So if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? It would be about women rising and how the power of women and and feminine leadership is going to change the world and is changing the world. Love that. Yes, go girl power. Tell me why why is this a topic that is so passionate for you? Oh, look, so many reasons. I think it started for me when I was in corporate and, you know, 18 years in big corporate, you know, multinational companies and seeing the challenges that I faced, that other women faced, being part of patriarchal structures you know, organisations made by men for men, not through any fault of the men, but that's just the world that we still live in. And the challenges that that poses for, you know, for women coming through, um, working on things like the male champions of change, 
with Elizabeth Broderick back, gosh, 10 more than 10 years ago now when that started to get more of men in power seats, the CEOs engaged so that, you know, diversity could stop being women talking to women about women yeah. and get the men engaged and, and, and seeing what's happened there. The journey of really understanding, really starting to understand, which was only about eight years ago for me, feminine and masculine principles of leadership, of of operating and what that meant, how that changed things for women and also for men. And the work that I you know, do now as founder and CEO of Women Rising, working with women and men all over the world to create authentic leadership, better workplaces, you know, greater societal outcomes, yeah, all of that. Like it's all in this beautiful melting pot. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's so many elements in there that I want to explore and dig into. But the first one I wanted to ask you is you said that this is something obviously that you've been, you know, you've been passionate about for a long time in your corporate career. How and what have you seen change, I guess, in the last sort of 10 years or so? It's an interesting question because on one hand, not a lot. And on the other hand, so much. I find it's a real paradox because when you look at the numbers of women in leadership, whether it's here in Australia, whether it's around the world, we're still seeing glacial rates of change. Some things are going backwards, some things are inching forwards, but we certainly haven't seen the sort of seismic shifts that 10 Years ago, when I was, you know, head of strategy at IBM, we were starting the Male Champions of Change work. We thought, oh, in a decade, you know, everything's going to look radically different. And it doesn't. Like, it really doesn't from a numbers perspective. On the other side of that equation, though, things that I, I never would have thought that we would be talking about living, embodying inside of not just organisations but society around authenticity, authentic leadership, vulnerability, you know, and all of Brene Brown's work, feminine traits and how this uprising of the feminine in all genders and how that's impacting workplaces. We've seen this all throughout COVID all over the world with really good examples of leadership. So on that other side of the paradox is there is so much of a shift coming. It hasn't yet translated into the numbers yeah and into those very systemic changes that we mm, still need definitely and some of the key elements i'd love to talk to you about quotas in a second as well but things about pay you know obviously equal pay and how what have we got we're still 100 years away or something in terms of the trajectory that we're heading on that um, women and men will get equal pay for the same jobs which is just incomprehensible to me but we see it all day every day the other element I think is interesting is obviously the change that you've seen in some of the stuff you just talked about then, but what um, has changed because of COVID. So the points around vulnerability and that more of a connection to emotion and real life and the authenticity piece because we've all been working from home. You know, obviously now we're out of that, but we're still all doing this and, and the workforce has changed forever now. So I'm curious on your view on that from a team's aspect and working with people and how, you know, how you think that that's benefited our cause, I guess. Yeah, look, I mean, again, it's it's a paradox, right, because the workplace is changed forever. All of those organisations 
Uh, and I, you know, use that term very broadly, you know, whether it's government, whether it's a corporate, not-for-profit, whatever, who for decades, literally, certainly the last 15 plus years have said, these jobs can't be done flexibly. They can't be done work from home. You know, work from home and flexible work is for, you know, women with small children. And once you're serious, you'll come back and sit there so I can see you all day. It's so true. They all, they all got their, they all got their shit together <laughs> remarkably fast. No, no choice. <laughs> no choice. Like fix it, fix it now. So just aside to that, a girlfriend of mine works high, she's very high level in government. And she made the comment, she's like, I know this is in the height of COVID. She said, I know this is really terrible and we're all having a rough time and I'm working from home. She said, but it's taken me five years to be able to get a laptop to be able to work from home because the department said it was too risky. She said, and then they all had to get us out of the office. So I had it within 24 hours. She's like, so frustrating and infuriating, but yeah. Yes. And I think it just shows so much about when we need to innovate we innovate and we do it very quickly and everyone comes together and it gets done when there's a commercial that there is that need in place. So, you know, I saw a piece of research this week that said, you know, more than 75% of people have no intention of ever going back to working how they did. So employers, like, get ready because it's never going to go back to what it was, whether you want it to or not. So this radical shift in the workforce is such an incredible thing. At the same time, it has shone a light on the very real challenges that women have at home still doing the vast share of everything, whether it's kids, homeschooling, you know, that juggle. Housework while they're running a multinational business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Even when there is a man and woman you know, at home together, of course, not all families look like that, but but as an example, and that's a very real challenge. And we're seeing that with so many women leaving the workforce, you know, like in the US, millions of women, we're seeing the same trend here. So many women are, are being forced out of the workforce. So again, it's paradox, right? Mm-mm. Massive steps forward. And we could set ourselves back 20 years mm. when it comes to women's progress in the workforce. Yeah, so I I touched on it before. So I'm curious on your view around quotas for things, you know, like making companies better. Do you believe in the old adage of what gets measured gets done? I'm a business strategist at heart. I do believe that what gets measured gets done. And I have always been a proponent for targets versus quotas. And I was head of gender diversity at IBM when I was head of strategy. It was like one of my executive roles and I did that for seven years. So very deeply ingrained in the practicalities and sort of that business end of gender diversity. And yes, when you have targets, when you understand the numbers, whether it's we want 50% for graduates and interns or 40% for managers, we want 35% on our board, whatever that looks like, we see real shifts. Quotas, on the other hand, I have never been completely sold on. When I started a PhD in women's leadership, and went through all of the research and the data. The jury was really out for me. So I'm not, yep, hardcore, let's go quotas, which is, you know, a woman will get the role regardless. But I am, we absolutely should have more rigorous targets. They should be in people's performance, you know, reviews, hit their bottom line for bonuses, like all of those things. 
we see real outcomes. Mm. And for me, it's, you know, I've been quite vocal about this a lot in the last, you know, few years because I've not seen stuff change. I've sat on boards for 20 years and we're still way behind in that space. And as I said, on a number of boards that I am the only female as well. So, you know, that's Tourism Tasmania is a very huge anomaly with it. It's a government board and there's 60% female, which is quite unique. I mean, it's fabulous in terms of the diversity and the the experience. It's not just diversity and, you know, gender, age, you know, it's experience, what you bring to the table. Obviously, cultural diversity is important as well as, as everyone's trying to work on that. But I think your view is really valid and your angle on it is interesting as well, Megan. And one of the things I want to get into a little bit more, though, is obviously the work that you're doing in around women rising. So there's obviously you're feeling there's a bit of a shift here. You want to help women rise more. And that's the work that you do. And your fabulous magazine that you've put together recently, Women the Journal, is just a beautiful piece. So congratulations on that. It's it's just a, such a lovely read. And also your book. It came out about a year or so ago, and I managed to get my hands on a copy. And it is just like a beautiful, warm hug. You, you write so beautifully, but um, you really have a wonderful way of explaining things and giving people a an element to think about a little bit differently. So the book's called Simple, Soulful, Sacred. And the way I've read it is I read chunks of it and in a short period of time and then I will go away and I'll come back to it. And it's it's just lovely. So congratulations on the book there as well. I think it's enjoyable. But I'm curious about how, you know, not only like the work that you're doing with Women Rise, what can others do? You know, to your point before about women helping women, like, you know, we're big advocates of that and that's very much a key element of it. But how how can others do that? How can men help women more? How can women help themselves? Oh, look, I mean, oh, gosh, I could just, well, we've got five hours to dig in. We've got five minutes. <laughs> it's very complex and nuanced. And I think that that is important to, to state. You know, we used to think that women talking to women, as I said, about women, that that was going to get us big progress. And it certainly did when we look at all the women's movements, you know, et cetera. And then while we need men in this conversation, men in positions of power, et cetera, like it has to be, it has to be an end, you know, women empowering themselves, which is what we do in Women Rising, which is all about, you know, like we're, we're unequivocal. We are here for the women. We are here to help women rise. It is our singular mission and purpose. And yes, we're going to help your business. If you're a corporation, we will help your bottom line, but our primary focus is on the women, if that makes sense, right? Because we can work on the structural change and we must making workplaces, you know, more culturally inclusive and all of that work. And really, I think that the biggest shift is actually going to come from women rising up, from women being so empowered, so authentic, so confident, and in the collective that uprising. To touch on that, though, for me, so coming from women themselves doing it, but what's the problem? Is it that they, you know, I guess generally we're talking, women are too, you know, not confident enough to step into that power? Is it that... They don't feel they're experienced enough. You know, all the statistics that, you know, the research that is your world that leads to the reasons why women don't put themselves forward and all those kind of things that we talk about all the time. What's the problem here? I've worked with, oh gosh, I would say more than 10,000 women around the world, all different countries, a lot in Australia, Middle East, the US, Europe, everywhere. 
Asia. I've done a lot of work in Asia as well. And it's really interesting. Yes, of course, there are cultural differences and nuances, but the issues, the challenges that I see women facing in their own words that we work through, like some of these things we've talked about, the lack of either permission or ability to show up authentically. We hear that word thrown around all the time, right? What does that mean for women? Well, everything from putting on a cloak and a mask to turn up to a workplace every day and behave in a way that they can fit into those patriarchal structures Mm. through to the lack of what they may not call confidence, but when you start to scratch at the surface, this is exactly what is their inner critic. It's their imposter syndrome. It is the stories that they're telling themselves that they're not even conscious to. Mm. Yeah. That once you actually start digging a little bit, you know, women come into our main program and they say, I don't have any issues with confidence. But the second you start, yeah, asking some questions out, it all comes. They weren't even aware of it. Mm. All of these pieces show up and compound in our workplaces, and then you hit the structural barriers. You know, you hit the ideal worker model. You hit the ideal leader model. And success looks like this, not this. And it all comes together, right? It's like a giant explosion that really comes into play as we see in the numbers when women get to manager level and then there's that choice, that selection point that they either make or is made for them of all of the biases, the maternal bias, if they're having children, how much do they want to continue to twist themselves into a pretzel to be able to rise up in the ranks, irrespective of what type of organisation we're talking about. If you have a topic burning inside you that you'd love to talk more about and have a conversation with me, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line at hello at wabisabiseries.com. Let's head back to the chat. It's interesting talking to some mates of mine that have run big companies and are really steering away from that. And I was sort of hit up about this recently saying, you know, I've I've been a CEO, I've kind of sit on boards, I do lots of other different things, but now I'm having the most joy out of literally sitting around a pottery wheel making clay pots. And people are like, well, when are you going to go back into the corporate world and run a big company again? And I said, well, I don't know if I ever will. And they're like, but how do you, how do you not do that? You know, like, is it an ego element? And I wonder whether, and as I said, I'm not not alone. I've got a number of, of friends that are in a similar vein where they're like, it's not all it's cracked up to be anymore. The big corporate, you know, position that we all strive for as a, you know, junior person, senior manager, executive coming through and we all, you know, many wanted to run the show. And once you've done that, it's incredibly rewarding on so many levels. But there's a lot of stuff that you have to sacrifice as well. And I wonder whether, you know, there is that element of women having to sacrifice more than than a lot of men in cases. Like obviously I don't have my own children, I've um, stepchildren, but I didn't have that other complexity either. But still I had a lot of other things to balance with. And, yeah, it's tough. And I'm just like it's not what I want to do with my life anymore. So I'm curious about, you know, and, and also the numbers of, how many women are starting their own businesses, especially in the last 12 months, has been phenomenal. And I don't know the statistics, you might know that, but um, I think that's that's saying a lot, right, that they want to do, you know, run companies, they still want to head things up and ve- they haven't lost that entrepreneurial spirit, even if they are a mum or 
have left the corporate world, but they they want to do it on their terms. And this is one of the biggest shifts, right? In Simple Soulful Sacred, the last two sections of that book, as you would know, are womanhood and sovereignty. And so many women pick up that book and they sort of whiz through the whole book, you know, the first eight sections, and they get to womanhood where we start talking about the heroine's journey and the feminine betrayal and all of this stuff we're talking about, leading like a woman, and they, they stop. They're like, oh, I'm not ready for that yet. Because they're not comfortable to step into that or is it begin because of the patriarchy that we've been conditioned? It's where I was 15 years ago where patriarchy, what are you talking about? It's what is the heroine's journey and and, and how that actually maps to, oh, my God, that's my life. We hear about mm. the hero's journey, mm. Star Wars and, and, you know, Joseph Campbell and all the rest of it. We don't hear about the heroine's journey. It's how we betray our feminine selves when we step into these masculine, deeply, deeply ingrained masculine roles and we leave our feminine at the door. Like you have no place here, which is certainly when I was coming through in organisations, there was no place for any of that, Mm. you know. No emotion. Like the men, no emotion. Even to dress sense, right? Exactly. So all of that. And I do also think women of a certain age, I think once you get into your 40s and 50s, certainly, it's like how long am I going to betray myself and what I want and who I am and my authenticity, my true leadership and doing things in a way that just doesn't resonate. You know, we see the burnout, we see illness, we see divorce, we see all, and I've had all of the things And for women, one of the unspoken conversations is where things come from that betrayal of ourselves. Oh, I just think you've just, that's just resonated so much. I just need to stop there. (laughs) How long are we going to continue to betray ourselves? Like that is profound, Megan. Yeah. One of my favorite things I wrote for Simple Soulful Sacred was, it's called the feminine betrayal. And this is part of the shift. You know, this is part of the conversation we need to have. And it's not just betrayal of the feminine amongst women. I mean, we've got all genders, right? But if we just look at, I don't, try not to talk in the binary, but if we just talk about the binary for a minute, it's not just the feminine betrayal in women, although that is the most profound wound that I see. But when I talk about feminine rising, I'm talking about the feminine in all of us. And I think that's a nuance that people don't understand, right? I talk about that in my death book is around feminine and masculine grieving. And it's not that men grieve this way or women. There are different elements. And, you know, you were talking about it before about feminine and masculine leadership styles. And, again, it's nothing to do with your gender. It's a beautiful point. This is really really important to, yeah, the Women Rising program and the work that we do with women and we bring men on this journey because when you start having a conversation with men about embracing their feminine traits, what that means for them and their leadership, when I'm physically with a group of men, you see like the shoulders come down. Yeah, wow. You see this softening happening. And it must be tough for them, right? Like you think about a guy and some of my mates are always like, it's bloody hard to be this A-type like bloke all the time. Like when I I have feelings too and if those are connected and they've got a good EQ, they want to be a bit more vulnerable. But, again, society has this expectation of how they should act as a CEO in a business. So, yeah, giving permission for that I think is a beautiful thing. Yeah, Gender norms and stereotypes around 
you will be this type of leader and this type of worker and this type of father. Like they keep men just as stuck. And we can't evolve the whole until we evolve all of the parts, mm. not just the women's piece. We have to evolve all of it and get a really, especially in this country, start getting a view of modern masculinity as it applies to men. Beautiful. Just as we look at how are women going to rise and how do we support that rise? Yeah, get a view of modern masculinity. I love it. And so something that keeps coming in the back of my mind while you're talking about this is, you know, obviously the listeners that I have, it, it's not just about males and how they can be better in this space and it, the elements we just talked about, their own masculinity, but also those that are raising kids. You know, how can we make these nuances and changes as parents to bring, you know, the next generations through with a different view around this? Because I can't help but feel the outcome of what we see as the end game in a corporate world of leadership with somebody behaving a particular way and that, that masculine sort of traits are the acceptable norm is a lot of that stems from our childhood. And as you say about the insecurity that women have in deep-seated, speak on a stage, I sit around a board table, but there are elements of things that you crack below the surface. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really uncomfortable about that. I'm really insecure about this. Or we all have those kind of, you know, demons inside us, I guess. What can we do to help our kids be better in their space or be better parents to nurture this through our children so that we start this earlier on in our journeys I guess before they get to the corporate space it starts with us has to start with us it has to start with us becoming whole humans embracing all these parts of ourselves the feminine the masculine you know I do a lot of work around traits and research-based things around traits so whether it is our vulnerability or whether it is our decisiveness or yeah like our vision for the future our collaboration, our creativity, bringing all of that and starting to redefine that for ourselves as grown-ups to take that responsibility to do that inner work. It's like with leadership, right? Like who we are is how we lead. And then it becomes about, well, how are we raising our children from a very, very, very young age? You know, not when they hit 15, but before they hit five. How are we looking at gender norms, gender roles, you know, all of this talk and all of this, you know, work in Australia that's happening right now that's just come to the fur around consent and, you know, boys and schools and, ugh, like, we could talk about that for months and years. Like, it has to start there with our teachers as much as our parents. Like, it's so it's so complex, right? Like, it's just so I'm not going to profess it in two minutes and say, this is what we do and it's all mm. going to be fixed. I think part of it's being conscious, isn't it? And it's the most simple thing to think about that is, I think I've talked about it before, is, you know, we use the term of a girl's bossy and a, a little girl's bossy and a little boy's being assertive. And that's so simple, but it, to me it speaks volumes in the way that we view our children and those, you know, mates that have girls and boys of identifying the way they treat their kids differently. I know my mum had an older brother and um, treated the two of us incredibly differently. It was 18 months between us. Uh, and she was, you know, seriously fierce female, like ran away from home at 14, fended for herself, you know, was so much of a woman's advocate. And yet in her own kids, my brother could do anything and get away with murder or whatever. And I had to do all the housework. Like it was just that gender norm type stuff, which I used to challenge her on. This is a huge part of the work, really understanding where our biases are at play. In our program, we show at the beginning of the confidence, we've got a, a module on radical confidence, which is one of the most prevailing 
issues when you get to a very deep level, right? And there's this video, you might have seen it called Like a Girl. And, you know, we play that at the beginning and it cracks these women open, like literally cracks them open. And the change in not just their understanding of where their confidence challenges come from, I was 13 and my mother said this or my teacher said this and that's never gone and hadn't thought about it for 30 years. Like these are conversations that we have. But also the conversations that they then go and have at home with their girls, with their boys, with their partner or their husband, because it is, it's an awakening. So it's really looking at where are these levers for awakening? Where are the levers and the triggers for us to become more conscious so that we can then do the work to become whole humans for us, for our teams, for our kids, for our communities. Mm, Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think the point that comes to mind is to do that work, but with kindness and, you know, gentleness and empathy for yourselves and also for your kids when you're having these conversations, right? And, you know, not beating yourself up going, oh, wow, like I've just listened to this podcast and then I'm recognising that I do treat my daughter like this and I treat my son like that. Like if we can snap that open a bit, fabulous, but don't beat yourself up about it. Just the fact that you've recognised it, but then also the um, famous quote of uh, when you know better, you do better. So, um, you know, those kind of elements of continually, we are a continual work in progress and we need to treat ourselves that way. Yeah, and we teach a lot about self-compassion and Dr. Kristen Neff's work, which again, you know, we see women in the program and they're coming through and they're all like, like with the book, they're going going along really well and, oh, yeah, this is about confidence and, you know, inner critic and stories, and then we get to self-compassion and they're like, oh, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not quite ready for that discussion around my own awakening of how I treat myself. So let's just put that over here for a minute. Dig in there for me. Why are we so tough on ourselves like that? Why do we have no compassion for ourselves? Is, is again, I mean, every every person's case is different, but there is a general thread for women across the board. Yeah. Why is because that? it's not how we are socialised. I mean, we always talk about nature versus nurture with yeah. all of these challenges, particularly around confidence we are, and again, generalization, of course, but this is what we see in the research. This is what I see in my work. We are raised to nurture other people, to take care of everybody else, to sit quietly in the corner, to not create a fuss, you know, all of these things to be kind, to be the nice girl, to be the good girl, which I also write about. That's a whole profound topic, right? The, the you know, the good girl socialization. And we do all of that. And you, we see women every single day taking care of everybody else, nurturing everybody else, and we are last. So when we start to say, well, what's your compassion for yourself? Where's your kindness towards yourself? How do you treat yourself and speak to yourself like you would speak to someone else that you're taking care of? It's very confronting for a lot of women. Very, very confronting. Just like saying, tell me about your vision for your life is also very confronting because when do women make time and space unless they're asked to, to think about that? 
Well, they mm. don't because they're so busy taking care of everybody else. Yeah, and those that do, it's interesting, you know, another thread that comes through is often it's their mates, like so other females that are the ones that give them a bit of stick about it, you know, like, oh, well, you're lucky that you can go and have a massage or you're, you know, how lucky are you? It's like rather than supporting each other and going, go, girl, you deserve that. That's amazing. And I do feel that we need to get better with this. You know, there's a lot of work we need to do, as you were saying before, about, you know, it's not just the men, you know, females supporting ourselves, but supporting each other more. I really feel that we can do a lot of work in that. And it might be something as simple as rather than giving a friend a bit of stick because, you know, they're increasing their profile on social media. You're like, oh, God, you're a bit on yourself. You're, a bit lo- you're quite prevalent in social media these days. Rather than going, it's awesome to see you you know, living your dreams and being out there, you know, I do feel that some of our toughest critics are those that are close to us as well, which is hard. I'm seeing a generational shift around this. The millennials and the Gen Ys are much better at this than the veterans, the boomers, and even the upper end of Gen Xs and this collaboration over competition. Again, all the rising of these feminine traits that we talk about And I think some of it is absolutely born out of that competitive landscape that women have come through in in an organisational work construct. Well, if there's room for one, then it better be me, you know, so I'm going to take care of myself and get up there. And we used to hear, you know, the veteran women and the baby boomer women all the time saying, I fought my way up. Yeah. The rest of them can do the same. And, And, like, thank God that's shifted. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head about the collaboration aspect. Again, it's another, if we are starting to break down those patriarchy kind of norms in businesses and in society, then a patriarchal norm is to stand on those, you know, around you to get ahead. Like that is the fight, like get in there, there is one role, I'm going to beat you to it rather than, you know, the collaborative approach that women tend to bring. Let's all do it together. Let's get in the team. Let's, you know. Yeah, so it's a, that's a really fascinating insight actually. It, um, it would be lovely to see that that increases. So, Megan, it has been an absolute delight to chat to you today. So many threads of conversations here that are really interesting actually and I love the work you do in this space. You are helping so many people and you're working for some pretty big brands in doing this work as well, which is just lovely because you'll make, you know, you're making a big difference, which um, congratulations. Thank you so much. Such a fascinating conversation. We could certainly talk for days, I think, on all of this, but thank you so much. I think I need to get you back uh, in future uh, just writing here around uh, the topic, Stop Being Good Girls. I think that would be a really interesting one to sort of thresh out a bit more, but it's been fabulous and we will have all the information about your courses, your books and all the fabulous things you do and the beautiful magazine in the show notes as well for people to get on and follow you and uh, hopefully uh, those that have been been intrigued to potentially do your course as well because I think you're um, making a big difference to those. So Thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you'll find all the show notes and interesting links on our website, wabisabiseries.com. If you'd like to hear more unexpected conversations, please subscribe to the series, follow us on our socials, or grab one of my books. And if you're in a generous mood, I'd love you to share the episode or maybe even rate, review and comment on the series. It really does make a difference. Until next time, be sure to claim your own piece of Wabi Sabi 
and walk proud in your perfect imperfection.